We're returning to Revelation uh, for the last time for a few weeks as we enter Advent. Our reading this morning is in chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, we're breaking into a section here. I'll try as much as possible to, to fill you in with anything you've missed. We're reading verses 13 to 17. And uh, we really would help if you used the Bible rather than the bulletin, but I leave that to your conscience. I'm actually reading these ones here because the print is big enough for me to see. Well, let's hear the word of God together. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder if you know this saying. I'm not asking your opinion. I'm going to give you the authentic opinion after I've said it. But I'm just preparing you for this saying. It's not my saying. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. There wasn't an outburst of anything there when I was was prepared for that. This is a common aphorism, and I have two major problems with it. Problem number one that I have with it, my first objection is, that it is obviously sexist, but it's also totally wrong to suggest that scorned women are mankind's biggest problem. I think those of us in the room here are grown up enough to have noticed or seen enough evidence of the fact that scorned lovers of either sex can escalate their reaction to being scorned to the point of murder, character assassination, serious damage to property, and even child abduction. And I'm not even going to talk about scorned politicians today. My second objection comes from the text. And it's that this, when Satan is scorned, there is no limit to the damage he is prepared to do to humans to animals, and to the earth at large. I think a better aphorism would be this. There is no fury like hell's fury. And that's the lesson of the passage for today. No fury like hell's fury. 
And as we begin to do through the passage, that's where I want to begin. I've got four words that will help us to make our way through the passage. And the first word is this word, fury. And here's the reason for it. Look again at the text, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. Now, if you're new to 10th or you haven't been following the sermon series just now, you may need some help to fill in the details. Let's ask then, who is the dragon that's in view here? If you had a Bible, or if you have a Bible open, and you glance back to verse 9, so those of you who just are using the bulletin can't do this, and have been exposed immediately, but if you go back to verse 9, you'll find that this dragon has been identified already in the text. He's this, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. In other words, the dragon is a figurative term for Satan, the enemy of humanity and the enemy of God. And we must also remind ourselves then of the identity of this woman. It says the woman that had borne the male child. Who is this woman? The clue, I think, is in a a reference, the reference to the male child. There are two women in the Bible who are associated with that reference. The first, and I think the most obvious one from this entire chapter, is in Genesis chapter 3, Eve. Eve was promised, outside the Garden of Eden, a male child who would come from her line as a descendant of hers, who would, in the end, crush Satan, crush the serpent, and destroy it. Eve held on to that promise. She believed the promise of God, and she was one of God's children. Eve's echo in the Bible a kind of second Eve, is of course Mary who conceived this male child that was promised to Eve through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit as God the Son assumed a human nature which he derived from Mary herself. Mary contributed Jesus' human nature to the incarnation. These two women represent the whole people of God from the very beginning of history to the very end of history. These two people, in many ways, determine the the use of language whenever the Bible in the Old Testament, particularly, is talking about the people of God, the church, Israel, uses feminine terms all the time to describe the people of God. Zion, the city of the great king, New Jerusalem, whose earthly form is the church, who is called the wife of the Lord and the bride of Christ. Uh, That's a great song of songs which was written for the church uh, by the Holy Spirit as a description of the love that goes between God and his people, Christ and his elect. If Eve represents the promise of the serpent crusher, 
then Mary represents the fulfillment of that promise in her son, who in his divine nature is the son of God and in his human nature is the son of Mary. Now, I go into all of that because it's quite fundamental to our understanding of the Christmas story that we recollect or retrieve from the past a title that Mary has, which is given to her by the Bible and is vital to our understanding of who Jesus is. I'm referring to the title Theotokos. Well, I know you know what that means. Immediately. Theotokos. It means the mother of God. That in Christian theology is a vital component of our understanding of who Jesus is. Hence the significance of Elizabeth, her cousin's greeting in Luke chapter 1 verse 43, when she says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, of course, at one level, it's true that Mary only contributed the human nature of Christ to Christ. But the person that Mary conceived, the person she carried, the person who was born in a human way of Mary was none other than God, the Son, as the angel explained to Joseph when he was telling Joseph about what the Holy Spirit had been up to and of who this child was going to be, he said, you shall call him Emmanuel, for he is God, God with us, God with us. So the birth of Mary's boy was of enormous significance to the devil. Mary's boy constituted an existential threat to Satan and all his work. That's why we were told back at verse 4 of this chapter that he comes and poised himself ready before the woman who was about to bear a child that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. He was ready to destroy this child As soon as Satan becomes aware of where he is being born, he prompts Herod to order the slaughter of the little boys in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or or under. Satan is a murderer and a destroyer from the very beginning. And he has no compunction at killing the little ones either inside or outside of the womb as he attempts to do with regard to Jesus. But Satan was not able to defeat the son of the woman. She was warned, Joseph was warned of God in a dream, and his parents escaped to Egypt, and they found refuge there until Herod died. And when they came back to Israel, instead of going to Bethlehem, they went to Nazareth, where the boy could grow up in safety. So having failed to prevent his birth, Satan then bends all his powers to have him prosecuted and killed. He thought the death of Jesus would be his success. But in the dying, Jesus bore the sins of his people. 
In the dying, Jesus secured the everlasting salvation of all his elect throughout all the ages. And by his rising again and his ascending into heaven and his being seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, Satan is completely destroyed. Satan has done his worst and he has failed miserably. And it cost him his place in the heavenly court. And Satan knew at that moment, he knew that his expulsion from heaven was final and irreversible. There was no way back. And full of rage, he pivots to expend his anger elsewhere. As uh, one of the commentators, Sweet, puts it, if he cannot directly attack the woman's son, he can hurt the son through the mother. He turns his attention to Jesus' people, to the elect, to God's church. Because you touch them, you touch the son. That was always the way. God said, people touch you, they touch the apple of my eye. If you injure the people of God, you injure God. Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus said to Paul, the persecutor, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He'd been hauling Christians to prison, putting Christians to death. But Jesus says, know this, you touch them, you touch me. And so the dragon goes off in hot pursuit of the woman. He turns his attention and his attack on the church. Israel, the mother of the Messiah, appears as God's Israel, the church, new Israel, the mother of the many brethren of whom Christ is the firstborn. The church is our mother. If God is our father, the church is our mother. We are born again by the ministry of the church. We are enfolded in the fellowship of God in the church. We, we enter the worship of heaven in the church with the assembled people of God. And uh, Paul writes in Romans 8, for, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The church is the mother of many brethren who are following Jesus, the firstborn, and being brought to life spiritually. Just as Mary is responsible under God for the birth of Jesus, physically, the church that she and all these other women I've mentioned who represent the church is the mother of the rebirth of men and women spiritually. The church is the Israel of God. So, so there's a symbolic link here to Mary and to Jesus' words to Mary and John, you remember, at the cross. Woman, behold your son, and to the disciple, behold your mother. What that meant for Mary and John personally in terms of the future relationship on earth, what it meant in terms of its spiritual meaning was that the church represented by Mary, the people of God, 
among whom she was a member, as we are, but she was also a symbol, as is Eve, as is the the woman in the Song of Solomon, a symbol of the corporate people of God. The church, uh, the believers are, are born, are related to Christ by being related to his mother, Israel. Not, not Mary as Mary, but Mary as she represents Israel. But the main character of this chapter, I said earlier, is Eve. She primarily represents the people of God. She is the mother of all living, we're told. That means all humanity. But because she's a believer and she believed the promise of God, she is also the mother of the nucleus of the new humanity, which is the remnant within the whole. So when we come to the New Testament, you come to the book of Luke. At the beginning of the book of Luke, there you find the remnant, Mary, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, who represent the remnant of God's church within Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. So the dragon then heads out in hostile pursuit of the woman. That word pursuit there can mean to run after somebody, literally run after somebody. Maybe girls, you've had a boy who's run after you. Maybe he was annoying. Boys, you can be annoying if you're searching out a girl that you're interested in. Get somebody to give you advice somewhere. But but the the word persecute might even apply in that situation too. Because the word that's used here for pursuit is also used by Jesus and Paul of persecution. In other words, somebody who's been really out to get you. Stalking, maybe. That's what the devil does. He's a stalker. Matthew 10, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, Jesus said, using the same word. Paul, when he's talking about his own pre-Christian activities, says about himself, in raging fury against them, that is the Christians, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Fury. Fury leads to flight. Look at the next verse. At this point in the drama, there's an intervention. But the woman who was given the two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. If you're new to that last expression, uh, the, the picture in Revelation is of three and a half years which is sometimes represented as 42 months or 1,260 days. Those numbers suggest a period of time. The, the, the days make, make it feel longer. The years correspond to the years of Jesus' public ministry. And the whole era of the church, no matter how many thousand years the era of the church is going to be, is represented by the symbol of that three and a half years. That is the period of the church's witness in the world. That's the period of the persecution of the church in the world. That's the period of God's activity in the world through the church. It represents that. So get out of your head any literal three and a half years. The only literal three and a half years was the three and a half years of Jesus' public 
ministry that it's imitating. So, let's pick out the other aspects of this flight. The great eagle. The great eagle is a metaphor for the eternal God. Deuteronomy 32, you have seen for yourselves, God says, what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you safe on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The eagle is the familiar symbol of divine strengthening and guidance to God's people. Isaiah 40, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Here are God's faithful people given divine strength to to persevere, to keep going in the things of God. And you notice the angel takes, the, the eagle's wings take them into the wilderness, the wilderness, just as God had taken Israel out of Egypt and brought them to the wilderness. It was a place of safety for Israel. They were well away from, from Pharaoh and his armies. They were there in the desert, and God keeps them safe there. And what we're being reminded of here is that the church is simultaneously both under threat and perfectly safe. Simultaneously. Under threat and perfectly safe. We've already seen in this book that the church is connected to heaven as well as to earth. Here we are in worship today in this room. We can see who's in this room. We're conscious of the numbers of people, the presence of other people. We've been listening to our own voices as we've been singing and so on. It's all very earthy, down to earth. And yet in the same room, there are myriads of angels. In the same room, we have the presence of the saints in glory who are also worshiping God. If we could see as God sees, there'd be no ceiling. They would be brought up with the whole host of the, the universe as they worship God together. When we gather in worship, it's not just the people in the room we're worshiping with. We're worshiping with angels and archangels and the spirits of just men and women made perfect. There's more to the universe than meets the eye. And so the church always has this double existence in heaven and on earth. Earlier on in the book of Revelation, we saw this. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where we have seven churches mentioned, and each of those churches is both a star in Christ's hand in heaven and a lampstand at his feet on earth. Secure in Christ's hand in heaven, while witnessing and shining forth the light of the world on earth. In the world but not of the world. The church and Christians have a heavenly as well as an earthly address. And throughout the whole period then, this three and a half years code for the whole period of the church's life, throughout this whole period of earthly persecution, the church is simultaneously being preserved and nourished in heaven. In chapter 11, the church was described as a temple And in the temple there is the Holy of Holies, and then there is the outer court. And in that picture in Revelation chapter 11, in the temple the worship's going on undisturbed, while the outer court is being overrun by the nations. And so it is that the church 
that is perfect and safe in heaven can be overrun here by the enemy as, they want to tr- as the enemy wants to trample down the people of God. So the heavenly and inward New Jerusalem is invulnerable. But the earthly presence of the church, the outward church, is easy pickings for the enemy. And the lesson is that God will strengthen and nourish his church as it continues its earthly pilgrimage here. He will give his church as he did for Israel in the desert. He will give them manna as a reward for their persecution, uh, their perseverance. In John chapter 6, Jesus himself tells us that he is the first installment of that heavenly manna. He himself is the bread from heaven that gives life to the world. You remember when Israel was in the desert, how did God sustain them? He sustained them by giving them his Torah, his word, and his tabernacle that represented his presence. And God continues today to guide and keep and nourish and strengthen his church by his word and by his presence. The Samus, they, they got this. Uh, how precious is thy steadfast love, O God. The children of men take refuge in the shadow of thy wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you there is a fountain of life. And in your light we see light. Or, let me dwell in your tent, your tabernacle forever. Oh, to be safe under the shelter of your wings. The preserving promise of the presence and the word of God keeps the church faithful to its testimony. So fury leads to flight, leads to flood. Here's the third point of the, of the chap, chapter, verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Knowing the woman has her safety in heaven, the dragon summons all he has to drown her earthly part once and for all. His purpose is to exterminate her. Now again, the, the, the picture is figurative. John has already used the image of stuff coming out of people's mouth. He had a picture of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. I remember somebody did some paintings for a a previous church I was in to be used by a previous minister, not this one, of uh, Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth. Ridiculous nonsense. It's It's imagery, people. It's figurative. The word of God, the word of Jesus, pierces to the heart. It gets right in there. That's what, the, that's what the image represents. Well, here's, here's what comes out of Satan's mouth. The psalmists talk about encountering a flood of evil. In Psalm 18, the psalmist feels as if he's drowning. The cords of death entangle me, like the, the seaweed getting wrapped around your legs as, you, as you're drowning. The snares of death confronted me, he said. Or in Psalm 32, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, in the rush of the great waters, they shall not, those waters shall not reach him. 
Or again in uh, Psalm 124, then the flood would have swept, swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Or Psalm 36, precious is thy steadfast love, O God. The children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. The flood that came from the serpent's mouth was intended to destroy the church. God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. What kind of flood might this be that comes from the serpent's mouth? Nero in AD 64, decreeing the death of Christians. The imperial Edicts that led to the fall of many of the faithful in the early church. The laws of the Third Reich, which were intended to silence the church, to discredit the clergy, and to obliterate the faith. The word of Satan, that effluence of evil, that comes pouring out of Satan. David saw something of this in the enmity of King Saul. It's irrational. It's unbelievable. David talks about it. Strike forth thy hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of aliens whose mouths speak lies. In that psalm, David speaks about deceit. And falsehood. And he describes it in terms of the rush of great waters. In the Song of Songs, the bride, the beloved, is described as the object of the love of God who is her husband. And she longs to be faithful to her beloved even as she finds the many waters of idolatry and worldliness and lies trying to steal away her love, the love that exists between God and Israel, between Christ and the church. And she says, many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. Can we be more specific? The many waters suggest persecution, but they also suggest deception. In Daniel chapter 9, in the latter days, our end time enemy, that is Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, Daniel says. Its end will come like a flood. He mentions the beast. He says about the beast, that is the Antichrist, he shall speak words against the Most High. He will deceive the saints of the Most High. Here in Revelation 17, many waters refer in chapter 17 to deceived people who follow the Antichrist or who are wrapped up in the world system, the whore of Babylon. Antichrist unleashes a torrent of error and evil, persecution and deception let loose by the serpent in order to sweep away the church. He wants to destroy the Christian name. 
He wants to draw people away from a sincere profession of Christ. Hence, we have warnings by the Apostle Paul of evil men and impostors who will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Or he says, in the last days, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You and I must reject Satan's slanders and hold fast the truth and demand that ministers of the gospel proclaim the whole counsel of God. Fury gives way to flight. Flight gives way to flood. And flood gives way to frustration. Because help comes to the church. The earth came to the help of the woman and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured out from his mouth. This is the most humiliating of all the actions apart from the ascension of Jesus to take place against the devil. God uses the earth. He uses created stuff to aid his people. He, he, the, the, the author personalizes the animate and inanimate creation. Satan and his allies can try as they might but they cannot make the world, that is the created universe, they cannot make things demonic. They can't do it. I mean, even inanimate nature, we're told in Romans chapter 8, and the animal kingdom wait in eager expectation of the revealing of the sons of God. They see the revelation of the sons of God at Jesus' return as the measure of their own, if they had a mind to think these things, we are the mind of the universe and are to think and speak on their behalf. But they see these things as their liberation from decay and decreation. The second law of thermodynamics will be done for. The falling apartness of the universe is rising all the time. That's done with. And the church, in many ways, goes with the grain of creation rather than being opposed to creation. So what does Satan do? Well, he's angry with the woman. He goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. Who is the woman? She is the church, our mother. We are her children. We are her children. We are those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. Now we have the confirmation of our understanding of the woman described here. Eve, Zion, the bride of the song, Mary, the church. She gives birth to the remnant that stands by faith and obedience. That's what happens right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between you, the serpent's seed, and her seed. And the enmity goes on. The target is always the one who was born of a woman made under the law. The one who united in himself both God and humanity. And through the church, our mother, and by the Holy Spirit, 
He is daily adding younger brothers and sisters to the church. The church is the pilgrim people of God, harassed and threatened and vulnerable. We see signs from time to time of those who've been before us. We sing a song or we read a book or we we see evidence of those who went before us who are pilgrims like us. We have to improvise many times to deal with the, the present threats to the church. And yet all the time, God in His grace keeps the church alive and faithful. She doesn't always get it right, but alive and faithful. And oftentimes help comes from the oddest places. And one of the places where help comes from is a created place, and it's the help that comes to the church from the angels. We have no idea, and we will not until we get to heaven, the degree to which angels were involved and have been involved in our individual lives on an ongoing basis from the moment we were born. All of us have stories, I'm sure. Many of us have stories of these. Of remarkable things that happened that are no explanation because the angels have been looking after us and active. The angels take a very great interest in each individual believer and in the church. That's what they do. We are not alone ever in the battle with the principalities and powers. We remind ourselves of Elisha who said about to his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And do you know, that promise that God made to Eve... The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, repeats to you and me and to the church. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet shortly. The church is destined to crush the serpent in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us this great vision of uh, your people in the world as we are buffeted sometimes, bruised, sometimes feeling a bit beaten. And yet, greater is he that is with us than he that is with them. A sovereign protector I have unseen, yet forever at hand. We pray that we would live in the light of that for your glory's sake. Amen.